Hello, and welcome to Behind Startup Lines with me, Phil Guest. Our guest today is Tom Lavery, the CEO and co-founder of Jiminy, a conversation intelligent platform that records and analyzes sales conversations to drive better conversions. What makes this conversation with Tom especially interesting is his background in sales. As a successful VP of sales, Tom embarked on his journey to build Jiminy over seven years ago. Now, you might presume that as a sales leader, he had a distinct edge when it came to acquiring new customers. But as you're about to discover, that's not necessarily the case. So let's get started and hear what Tom has to say. So, Tom, great to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to Behind Startup Lines. Hey, Phil. How are you doing? Great to be here. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Your journey is a really interesting one because I've been talking to a lot of founders who are engineers or product people, and very few people do I come across who are former commercial people that set up a tech business. You've done that very successfully with Jiminy. And I would love to hear your story today about how you did that, what the transition was like from a sales leader to building your own business, and also just some of the challenges you've had from a commercial perspective. Now, many people would just think that as a former sales guy, you're absolutely nailing sales and money is flying in the window. Mm. Is that true? No, sales is always hard. (laughs) Anyone who's done sales or is in sales will know it doesn't matter at what point in time. It's never easy. There's always challenges. Things evolve. Everything changes. The market changes. Products change times change so I think probably the most interesting thing about sales now for doing it in different guises for like 20 years is it never rests it never stops so you're constantly having to think on your feet and evolve and change stuff whether you're an AE whether you're a VP whether you're chief revenue officer whether you're a CEO it evolves around you so you have to be adapting all the time great well tell us a bit about Jiminy then and the origin story behind that idea And then let's get into the detail of how you started, how you won your first customers and what traction has looked like over the last few years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're what's called a conversation intelligence provider. For those people who don't know what that is, we record, transcribe and analyse voice, video and email. Probably the most valuable asset that a business has, in my opinion. And it's really developed. We give indications and statistics and stats on how people are performing in calls. And then you can use that to help like maximise revenue, improve performance. So it's really the power of understanding the data and having that visibility. But we really help teams and customers to use that data in their sales process to basically make things better and improve. And where did you get the idea to build your own business? Yeah, there's a couple of different sides to it. I think I'd been a VP of sales for a long time and, you know, I was good and good at sales, but maybe I wanted to challenge myself in a different way. But yeah, I was living in the States at the time in New York and managing sales across three geos it was just really difficult probably the most good businesses come from people's own experience of trying to fix and solve problems so for me the visibility of performance being we were very passionate about training and developing people everything in the states was much bigger and vaster so it's being done online and we just couldn't do it it was very difficult you had like webex a desk phone internet wasn't as good video wasn't as good salesforce notepad nothing was connected really gave us the inspiration to like how do we help salespeople get better that's our mission you know we're a very mission driven company how do we help salespeople get better all the time but at the same time when you're in the boardroom or 
you're trying to build a sales force, you were really going off not what is black and white. It was very grey if you go back sort of 10, 15 years ago. I think there's still a lot of work to do to really understand reality. But yeah, it's definitely got better for sure. Mm-hmm. And were you one of the first conversation intelligence players to turn to the market? What was the transition from that into being an entrepreneur? Well, one of my strengths is to probably like run fast and move quick. And then again, their strength is a weakness. So when I started the company, I thought I was the first, but I probably should have done more due diligence. I think look, recording systems have been around in contact centers and stuff like people were recording, but actually to do it for B2B sales teams on video and start to transcribe, I thought we were the first. And then about three months after starting the product, someone tells me there's a couple of big US companies that are really well-funded that are doing something very similar. So I think maybe two or three people in the market had an idea around the same time. But I think that's always a good thing, right? You don't want to be the only one. And I think everyone in the industry over the last sort of half a decade or so has really pushed the idea. And definitely in SaaS or tech, it's become the norm to have this sort of technology now. Still not in other verticals or there's still a lot of companies that don't have it. But yeah, it's definitely becoming a a mission critical product, I'd say, for sure. When you heard that there were some other players in the market and you said that that's great and I agree that it shows that there's interest in the market and there can be one more than one player. How did it really affect you, Tom? Did you then go, oh my goodness, you know, I picked something here that might already have been done or was it that you genuinely felt, no, this is great, it's just validation that I have an idea worth pursuing? Nothing's ever completely unique, is it? It's always an evolution of something else. Those take a lot of inspiration from Apple. They're never the first to do everything. They just come along and do it in a simpler way or a better way, you know, ultimately. So I've talked about it before. I think early stage founders, you can get bogged down with trying to be the biggest and the best quickly enough. And you have to learn to run your own race. And I'm very much comfortable with that now with our goals and what we're trying to achieve as a business. Ultimately, you want Jiminy to reach its potential and do a really great job for the customers and for the team. What people define as that, some people define that as going public and IPO, other people in different ways. But yeah, no, I think the product and kind of things, how we've evolved, we've always tried to have our own spin on it and be very unique and approach it in a different way. I think that still stands true today. And I think people having variety in the market and going, well, I want it in this flavor or this shape. I want more of this or less of that. I think it's probably good for the consumer, really, for the buyer. How did you get started? Because I take it you weren't a product expert. You weren't an engineer. Did you do that on your own? Did you have someone to work with? My wife's a co-founder, but she's more commercial as well. I have a technical co-founder, my CTO. Most great companies, you have to have a good founding team. That There's always gaps. And then we hired two other engineers from the beginning, one who'd we worked with in our previous company at Royal Gateway. And I think I had three or four exceptional engineers working very closely. So I learned product, the UX, UI interface, what we do when we build a product, all of that I learned on the fly, researching, reading, learning from the team. I mean, even James, my co-founder, this is his second job. (laughs) He worked at Royal Gateway as a lead backend engineer, built the product from the ground up. And then I pulled him over and we worked at Jiminy so you know he's like a couple of years younger than me I'm nearly 40 and like he's only ever had two jobs uh, there and here everything changed as well from Royal Gateway days there was the cloud the infrastructure AWS how you're going to build it to scale like even James and I you know all of this stuff we had to learn together with the team 
but yeah, I'm a big believer that you can do anything. The information's out there. You just got to be curious, right? If you're curious enough to go find it, you can work out how to do it. And when did you start? What was the year that you kicked off going kind of 100% in building Jiminy? I had the idea in 2015 and then left Royal Gateway in the summer of 2016. Took a little bit of time off. Started with a blank Google Doc. We met up at WeWork and like, right, we want to help make salespeople better. And we started writing the spec and we had an idea about capturing and recording data and it just evolved from there. Um, there's still stuff in the original tech spec we haven't built that we think were great ideas. Maybe we're constantly trying to evolve and build these things all the time. You know, even to get the beta version, you've got to be very patient. It takes six, seven months and even then it's very raw. And then you've got to get it into the wild and it performs really differently. Then you've got to get feedback and iterate. So it takes like one, two years to get a product stable. It takes four years to people to start to know who you are. You know, seven, eight years for people to know who you are at scale probably. And really it's a decade to build a great solid business in my view. I, I saw that from Royal Gateway, but you do have to think about the sacrifice and the commitment if you want to do it properly. You know, nothing happens overnight, everything takes a little bit longer than you think. So let's go back to the early customers then. You decide to set this up. You've got a technical co-founder. You've got a couple of strong commercial people in you and your wife. And then you go out there with your first ready-made product. What was it like getting those early customers? I think we had something bleeding edge at the time. Even now it's cutting edge. If you're doing something that is very critical and it's got a high level of innovation... I think that makes it easier. Probably a lot of people who are listening maybe read like Crossing the Chasm and stuff like that. You are looking for the early adopters. You are looking for risk takers. You're looking for people who will be invested in it. In sales, even if you're great, you're getting no, what, 60, 70% of the time. And that's if you're a great salesperson. So like when you're a founder and no one knows your company take a risk, like you're talking like 5% probably. And that's if even if you're good at selling again. Just got to go hard and get a lot of no's but you know we charged from it from day one it was probably I thought it was beta it was probably alpha but the big thing for me is that if they are paying they care if they care they're invested and they'll push you to make it better and if they're paying you won't want to lose those customers so you work harder to keep them so the whole dynamic for me works much better if you're actually both committed and you're both committed in terms of like proper contract, money's exchanging hands, like we want to make this work. I think out of our first sort of six or seven customers, we still have three of them, which I find hard to believe because they've been through very different versions of the product and everything like that. But at the same time, I'm forever grateful to those people who like take a risk. Like once you've got 10 clients and you can start to really test stuff, it's great for the business. But OK, this is interesting. A few people have brought it. You get to twenty thirty, okay, this might get some traction. So, you know, those first 10 people are very critical to the success of the business. So we always really appreciate that. And did you have a clear picture of where you were going to go find these initial 10 customers? I mean, thinking of some of the tactics that we use in sales, clear idea of who our customer is, the problem we're solving for them, and being very targeted in who we go and talk to first. Was that the case in this instance? Well, you know, like when we built the product, I hadn't been a VP of sales at IBM. You know, I was at a we used to Broad Gateway now sold recently for like one point one billion. But you know, when I was there we started in an office in Notting Hill and there was like eight of us. 
And then we grew it to like 350 employees. So I was used to, you know, 100 customer facing people. So, you know, Jiminy was always built for like probably SMB mid-market. But I think the vast majority of sales teams are, you know, start with three or four reps and never get bigger than 100-ish. So I would say that in tech, we were looking at like tech companies because they take risk and they're early adopters. So very much the profile of my previous company and the product was naturally like built for them. I thought if I was the SVP of sales there, still, this was for them. And of course, they were one of our customers and they still are today. But it was really built for Reward Gateway (laughs) because uh, that's where I was working previously. Okay, and in terms of just reassuring people, what tactics, Tom, did you use or would you advise companies to use today to kind of overcome that risk profile? Because you're right, bleeding edge, bit of a problem for many. How do you convince somebody to take the initial step? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine it's even harder now. I mean, the amount of, when I see even in deals, the amount of scrutiny that goes on spending money and infosec, like it's, I can imagine it's only got harder than it used to be. I think we've always had a bottom up, even when we go into big teams now, like we might sell to a business that has like, I don't know, maybe 300 sales reps, but we might start with one division in one geo and have like 50 or 60. So I think, you know, whenever a company's adopting something new, like never be scared to like go, right, we'll just start with one team and one division. And I think you've got to face the reality. If you try and go into one company and, and sign up hundreds of users, probably not going to be good you know, in terms of the infrastructure you have, the CS capacity, everything else. So kind of works in your favour. So I think bottoms up approach, not so much. I've never done product led growth where it's just like buy online. But if you're talking about like enterprise software, which basically means sales led growth, I think you can start small and expand. What do these businesses expect from you? Or maybe it's a bit different now to what it was back in those days. But what do they expect from you in terms of a clear business case? I mean, are you seeing that return on investment, it's kind of required more now in the current climate than perhaps it was back then. But how are you using business cases to convince people that it was a risk worth taking? Big chunk of our business comes from inbound because we've driven that through brand awareness and everything else. So and referrals and stuff like that. So when it's coming inbound, there's a lot of intent, right? Because it's bottom of the funnel. They're kind of educated and they know what they want so I think if I take a step back from it really one of our USPs we always decided was that we would differentiate outside of the tech so in terms of support service attentiveness time how to work with them to improve results on the platform some of that obviously we've scaled through workshops Jiminy Academy automated over time but no one can copy that because it's a cultural thing yeah you know, ex-competitors got a bit more of a transactional product or, you know, operates in that way. They can't change the culture of their business in terms of how they want to act, behave and speak to customers. So, yeah, like, I don't know, we have features at the moment that no one else does in the market and it's awesome and people are loving it. But that'll only last so long before someone else copies it or does whatever. So, you know, your mission, our why. And then I've always thought about, like, how do we operate So how do we deliver conversation intelligence differently? How do we drive engagement? How are we a great partner? How do we make sure they're using the data better than anyone else? The actual what and the part of the product, yeah, you want awesome USPs, but, you know, it's only one piece of the jigsaw for me. You've touched on there about 
differentiating in, in the product. Can you give us a few examples then? You, you touched on them. What are the sorts of things that you're doing that you found to work really well in establishing that unfair advantage? Yeah, I think we're getting better at it as we get bigger, right? Um, you'd hope so. You'd learn. I think it's getting very confusing for, in our market right now. It's getting very confusing for people because everyone's trying to be everything to everyone. And I'm still yet to see a person where they said, I brought all five things from this provider and I love it. It doesn't really exist because people, it doesn't matter in SMB or enterprise, people have high expectations or they need to achieve certain things based on their business. But, you know, I, I think for me, it's staying true to the mission. What are you trying to achieve? So when we look at it, it's like, how are we narrowing down where you should spend your time? How are we saving each person, whether it's the user, the manager, the rep time? And then how are you drawing out data points which move the needle? So you can see on LinkedIn, something we've done recently is like automated call scoring. So like we automatically QA every conversation on a base level. So, you know, people spend loads of time on like Bant and MedPick and that, but they don't know if it sticks, right? So like, you know, imagine every single conversation, we speak to customers who have like 10,000 calls a week, or they might have even 50 demos, it's too much, right? But like, are the basics happening? Then I can go in and subjectively coach on these areas and spot the trends. So there's things like that, that people are like, that's a game changer for me. That's different to anything else I've seen before. So there's not one ever, one reason someone buys. It has to be multiple, like the value has to be right. uh, The relationship has to be right. The product, all of these different things, but having a part of your product, which 80% of the customers will use and see as like a, I can't live without it feature um, is probably key. You touched on culture a bit earlier and I want to get into building that culture, particularly about early hires and bringing those people in how many employees now in Germany about mid 70s I think we've always got a few hires going on but yeah mid 70s yeah and you go back to the early days when you're starting to expand the team and bring in those either first sales people or other people was culture an important part when you were making those hiring decisions and can you just talk to us a bit about what process you went through to find people who are the right fit yeah culture is something that everyone creates so the why is the mission how you operate is your values so that's your values are how you behave together so we wrote them when we wrote the tech spec of course they've evolved so if you've got a clear mission and you've got clear values and you live those values that's what creates a culture it's not like oh we've got a cool product and we give you some hoodies and we're in a we work and there's some beer this is not good culture <laughs> culture is how you behave together because it's all about communication. It's all about human beings interacting. I think, you know, we've evolved this over time, didn't get it right. You know, we've got lots of people who've been there three, four, five years now, but we doubled the team over the last year. So when we hire, you've got to look for skill. There's always going to be gaps, but skill that you need for that role, whether it's for or not. You've got the culture fit, like are they going to live the values? Then you've got how do they fit into the team? So if you're adding the third person into that team of two, is it going to work? Is that dynamic going to fit? And then I think the thing that often, you know, I'm not perfect at either is, and it's very difficult depending on how the business grows and how quickly, is like, are they stage appropriate? You know, at certain levels of business, you need people to do certain things, either quicker, faster. So making sure that they are right for the stage that you're at. Yeah. So, you know, you bring in a marketing leader at a certain stage of a business, they're going to have to be very operational, roll their sleeves up, blah, blah, blah. So I think the stage appropriate, are they really ready for the reality of what it's like? Like, 
if someone thinks, sorry, I'm going off on one here, but passionate about this. If someone's like, here's my roles and responsibilities, and the company's like, I don't know, a couple of million ARR and seed, and they're growing, right? And they, oh, I'm going to join this startup. And they think, oh, my roles and responsibilities change, you know, and evolve over time, but they don't like that, then they're not going to be a good fit because it's just going to adapt. And I think you need certain people who are flexible, who really care, who are willing to adapt and change and grow with the business. And that's not easy to find. I think that's why it's so hard in the early days. You're looking for great people who are got good talent and on an upward trajectory and can grow with the business. Have you had instances then when you've had mishires, either they've come in not understanding what life in startup world is like, they're either too senior too early or yeah, not willing to get stuck in? Have you had any mishires like that? Yeah, absolutely. You've always got to take collective responsibility and look after people and make sure they go on to their next challenge happy. At the end of the day, I always say to people, anyone's got to be happy in what they do. If it's too busy too chaotic or you know whatever how it's their world it's their reality it's how they feel some people thrive in those environments some people find it a bit more challenging one of our company values is to be open like I try and meet everyone before they join even depending on the team it depends how involved I am in the interview process but just making sure we're really clear is that this is what the company's like this is how it feels things can change quite quickly and just really laying it out for people the best we can so they understand the reality. A lot of people listening to this show, they're not commercial people, they're not salespeople by nature. They're hiring salespeople. Do you have any tips for how to really assess whether a salesperson is any good at what they do? Because obviously we're really good at selling ourselves in an interview environment. But how do you assess whether or not they can do the job for you? Yeah, it really depends on the vertical. I mean, I think you need to test in the sales process, you know, it's so easy, you get a developer, you can create a test, you can review the code in GitHub or whatever, and James can say, this code is good, it's clean code, yeah, you've got to see their raw skills, you've got to get them to like, write an email, do a cold call, try and hunt one of the team down if it's a BDR, or get them to present, I think resilience, you know, there's certain questions you learn with experience, like how do you find people who are gritty, hardworking, resilient, take feedback well, coachable. Again, this is about the stage of business you're at, but definitely growing a business, being younger. I think all those sort of ingredients are important for me in hiring a salesperson. A big part of it is mindset. It is mentality. People talk about all this other stuff all the time. It's not complete bullshit because, you know, it is important, but I don't always believe that, you know, if you fucking do medic 100% of the time, every time you're going to win the bloody deal. That's rubbish. Every different conversation is different. Do you need to apply parts of it in certain situations because it's right? Absolutely. It's like having the confidence, the mindset and the ability to handle senior people, hold a room, think on your feet. There's definitely science to lots of it and there's there's massive bits of art two at the same time but yeah mindset mentality resilience uh all the ingredients that make a great salesperson you can teach all the other things on top but it's very hard to teach someone to be self-motivated or determined or made a teflon (laughs) you know sort of thing so you can mold you can mold people to think like that and behave like that but it takes time and you've got to invest in people like it's the same thing again where people say oh we're seven months in and just things take time people are so impatient 
you know, to make salesperson great. I was talking about this the other day that someone's an AE or they've been a BDR for two years or an AE. It's like, well, what, you can go Google it. It takes 10,000 hours to master something. So you've been an AE for two years. You're like, oh, I should be a senior AE now. Why? Have you done 10,000 demos? If you do two a day, that'll take you six years. So like, I think people's just expectations of like, oh, I know how to do the job or I'm actually good. No one wants to really master a craft like they used to. I think people used to be way more grateful to get a job and people used to be way more grateful to invest time in being more patient to get better. I'm not being a moany old man. I'm just saying that sometimes you just got to remind people of these things. Okay. When you think back on the journey, Tom, of building Jiminy, I mean, if you were to do it all again, what would you do differently? I just think because of our domain experience, we built a really great product, really good customer service, really good sales motion, but we didn't have marketing domain experience. So I think some of the demand gen and demand capture stuff, it's not for the want of trying. I wish I got it right sooner, but you know, you can't have everything. There's always going to be something that you wish you did or would have done. We're already in the very, very small percentage of businesses that ever make it to this stage. I can't remember what the stat is, but when you get to sort of our size and stage, it's very, very low percentage. So, but I think maybe making the right hires around that sort of role would have been key for us. And maybe we would have done some things faster, but you know, you're just grateful for where we are today, really still. And did you make good use of advisors in the early days? Did you work with any external advisors that were able to come in and maybe accelerate some of your thinking around those areas? Like you said, lead gen, marketing, maybe where there were gaps in your knowledge? Yes, I did. Lots of early customers who could help advise on the product. Had more kind of like CRO, early adopters who would get us in somewhere. I think you think you're focused a lot of the time, but are you really focused? So I think one of the things that is very easy for a founder, like, you know, you have to be very disciplined with where you spend your time, you know, making sure that you're putting it in the right areas and doing the right thing. So once you understand and you've got that wagon wheel of your first hundred clients and where they're coming from, even times I look back and like we were trying to do too many types of marketing, brand marketing, you know, demand gen events like social you know you just got to go right these are the two things that are going to work for us right now we'll double down on that so again it comes to sometimes trying to do too much too fast trying to be too ambitious you know someone holding up a mirror and going are you really focused but probably not probably not enough advisors who helped I mean we bootstrapped for a long time right and we took a small amount of seed money so that can sometimes be a good thing for various different reasons but maybe also like not having as much advice and support around could work both ways maybe you bootstrap the business then you haven't taken any significant investment at this point no we have we have now had to like the product's a very complex product we've always invested in r&d there's product costs everything else you know when you're an ai platform just the consumption the capture Everything you're doing, it's not like SaaS years ago where you just think you're going to get 90, high 90s percent margin on a product. If you do these days, you've probably not got that much value in your product. So no, we put some of our own money in. I loaned the business some money. That was to get us through the first sort of couple of years. And we took some money from a family office. They were super helpful, still invested now. We took debt as much as we could so then we didn't have to raise to our metrics are right. So we used debt for a long time. And then last summer we did a round with Kennet Partners, 
which an investor of ours. So it'll be a year in August. We did a about sixteen and a half million dollar round then. But we did a lot to get to that point to to raise a big round. Great, congratulations! That's fantastic news. So, what advice would you give Tom then to any other aspiring commercial person that wants to set up their business and go on a similar journey as to you? Two things for me is like in your job, do you work with great people? Like great people, and are you growing and learning? And if you're doing those two things, you're going in the right direction. And I think, you know, if you're a commercial person, like make sure that's happening first. Because if you're not doing those two things, then you're not going to learn enough to be able to do your own business because it's so hard and there's so many different dynamics. So you have to learn from great people and work with great people. There's a lot smarter, more brilliant people out there than me who maybe can just start their own business when they're 21 and make it a success but no I had to go and learn my trade and spend time learning from other people and work closely with them so make sure you spend your time with great people and learn and grow. Tom this has been great insight thank you for sharing your story. I have a little bit of a tradition here where I wrap up our conversation with a question which has a bit of a military slant on it and my question for you as we close this discussion really is around friendly fire. So. What I'm interested in hearing from you, Tom, is if you've had to handle a friendly fire situation, such as an internal conflict or a misunderstanding amongst team members, how do you handle those? Well, look, I won't get started on this one, but at school, you don't get taught how to communicate. Like, it's not a thing. You don't get taught how to have important conversations. And you probably maybe do in the army more. I know you've got your military background and stuff like that, but it's all about people and it's all about comms yet we don't effing teach it at school. Maybe they're doing stuff now, but when I was at school, we didn't get taught it. So for me, often it's getting people to take a step back, put themselves in the other person's shoes, teach them to have empathy and seek to understand. And usually, most things, even if they're really idiotic, don't come from a place of bad intention a lot of the time. It's just people not thinking or not communicating. So a lot of these things can be unpicked just by being reasonable and understanding. But yeah, I try and be very big in our onboarding on making sure that people over-communicate, people are very clear, people speak on the phone a lot, people have action-based meetings and results-based meetings. So I would just say holding a mirror up is the best way, really, because that's what you're there to do. You're not there to tell them what to do you're not there to preach and give advice you've got to hold a mirror up and get them to see each other's side of things great advice tom thank you real pleasure talking to you thank you for taking the time to talk to us today where can listeners learn more about jiminy and get in touch with you anyone can reach out to me on linkedin tom lavery i'm always pretty good at getting back to people you can message there if you go j-i-m-i double n-y jiminy.com you can chat straight on the website and put you straight through to the team you can book a call yeah either way brilliant thank you tom really appreciate time today and all the best with the next phase of building jiminy thanks phil pleasure and that wraps up our fascinating conversation with tom lavery ceo and co-founder of jiminy from his unique insights into the world of sales to his adventurous journey in building a conversation intelligence platform Tom's experience is a testament to the perseverance and innovation spirit necessary to build a new business. Tom's transformation of Jiminy into a powerhouse that accelerates deal closures 
along with their recent Series A funding success, serves as an inspiration for many emerging entrepreneurs. Thank you, Tom, for sharing your story. And thank you, listener, for joining me on this episode of Behind Startup Lines. I'm your host, Phil Guest, and I look forward to bringing you more inspiring stories from the front line of startup innovation in our next episode.